so that uh, we're not distracted by looking at the returns. This thing's not going to be decided in the next hour. All those, all those states that are up for grabs are not going to be getting definitive uh, returns in the next hour or two, probably. Hopefully, <coughs> it will be somewhat, somewhat soon. Okay, a couple of announcements. Uh, just to remind everybody uh, that the we're going to have what's the date we're having the church 11th. Christmas dinner the 11th of December we have the church uh, Christmas dinner there will be no Bible class on Thursday night uh, Thanksgiving there will be no Bible class on December the 6th Tuesday night December the 6th because we take a lot of our equipment and people and we go to the pre-trip conference. So there won't be Bible class those two nights, Thanksgiving, Thursday, and then the first Tuesday night in, um, uh, in December. I think that's about it. Another thing, be in prayer for uh, there's a mission team with Disciple Makers Multiplied. Uh, Jeff Phipps is with them. And they're hosting two conferences down in Natal, Brazil. One is specifically for pastors, and that begins this Friday, November the 11th, and goes through November the 22nd. There's a financial need of $3,000 for the support of the trip, and they ask that we, we keep that in our prayers. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer that we can make sure we are spiritually prepared for our time of study of God's Word, a time of worship this evening as we study the Word. And um, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful, thankful for the wonderful privilege we have had as citizens of this great country where we have experienced a degree of freedom that has never been experienced uh, by everyday people and throughout the history of the world. We have a, a tremendous freedom and tremendous prosperity in this country, and we have been richly blessed because of your grace and your goodness to us. And Father, we have such a rich heritage of Bible-believing leaders and Bible-believing people that has laid the foundation for this great nation. Father, tonight in this, as we hear the returns from this, uh, this election. Uh, we pray that there will be a foundation laid through the leaders elected tonight that we can turn a corner or at least stop the deterioration and collapse. But we know that that that's not going to happen unless there is a transformation that takes place in the hearts and the minds of people in this country. And there's a great challenge before churches and Christians to be evangelists and do the work of evangelism and be able to give an answer for the hope that is in him and to lay out the case for Jesus Christ and trusting in him and him alone for salvation, but also laying the case for the need to grow and the need to mature and the need to build a life based upon the thinking that is uh, taught in your word. We need to have transformed minds and transformed lives. Father, we pray that you would um, strengthen our faith because no matter what happens tonight, the issues are still the same for us as believers, and that is to walk closely with you, to trust you, to obey you, to make uh, learning your word and applying it in our lives the highest priority that we can have. And Father, we know that there are many people, some in this congregation, many Christians throughout this country, who are perhaps necessarily so distracted by too many responsibilities, and they need to re-examine their priorities and put the study of your word first. And Father, we pray that you would challenge each one listening and each one in this congregation that that needs to be a priority to be uh, transformed. It doesn't happen 
in um, 30 minutes or 45 minutes once a week, but it is a day-to-day process. Father, as we study your word today, may we be reminded that you are the one who is our defender, you are the one who is our shield and our high tower, and that we have uh, protection from you no matter what is going on in the world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Last week we covered 1 Samuel chapter 19, 1 Samuel chapter 19, but tonight we're going to look at Psalm 59. I want you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 59. And when we look at Psalm 59, we read in the, um, in the, in the opening uh, superscript, which gives authorial information, we read that this is to the chief musician, and it is set to a tune called Do Not Destroy, and it is a classification of psalm called a miktam of David. But we're told what the specific circumstances were of this psalm, that it is when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill David. This is what we studied last week in um, in 1 Samuel chapter 19, that David had married uh, Michal, or Michelle, it's a little easier to pronounce, Saul's daughter. Saul is now his father-in-law, and Saul has uh, attempted to have him killed or to kill him five times at this particular point in our study. And this is... Uh, David's response, and it is a tremendous opportunity for us to take stock in our own mental attitude and how we respond to attacks, to circumstances, to situations that come up in our lives, whether they involve uh, personal attacks from people we know or don't know, or whether it's systems, systems of government, systems of bureaucracy. Uh, we think particularly this election night of of the trends that are going on in Western civilization, trends that are hostile to those who believe in biblical truth. Though we, you know, there are glimmers of hope. Too often we are the victims of a very liberal leftist agenda that is held by the media, and we don't get stories. We don't get told things. And, uh, and there's a lot that we miss. How many of you know that two weeks ago there was an enormous demonstration in Paris, France, not Paris, Texas, where 700,000 people came out to demonstrate. How many even know that there was a demonstration of that size? 700,000, that's bigger than most towns in Texas. Do you know what they were demonstrating against? Anybody want to guess? 700,000 people came out to demonstrate against same-sex marriage in Paris. Check it out. We're not told a lot of good things that are going on in this world, and it's important to keep up. Uh, And it's hard to keep up when you have a media that doesn't want you to know that their story, their narrative, uh, isn't uh, isn't the only one, isn't the one that is that is being accepted. But many times we face opposition. We face opposition from the culture. We face opposition from from uh, maybe from teachers, uh, faculty members, university professors. We face opposition from. Um, maybe people in our own family because they don't agree with our own belief system. And we have to learn how to handle these things. And Scripture says that of the ten spiritual skills that God gives us, the ultimate one that I think is the last one is joy, sharing the happiness of God. That's what James starts with in James 1.4, count it all joy. My brethren, that's not just some superficial exercise. That has to do with an embedded mental attitude that is the same mental attitude that the Lord Jesus Christ had when he went to the cross. Sure, he sweated blood. He was uh, discouraged. He was sorrowful. He was grieving as he faced the cross, but his joy never diminished because he's he's immutable. He never changed. His joy never diminished. So we can be, we can have those bittersweet um, 
emotions where on the one hand we face realities and they're sad and they're sorrowful, but at the same time they're overridden by the joy that we have. And that's what we see in this psalm. David is facing the opposition from his father-in-law, who's the king of Israel, who's going to bring all of his governmental authority to bear against David to have him killed. He's sending hit squads, execution squads uh, against David to destroy him. This is his father-in-law. This is uh, someone he has grown close to as he ministered to him with uh, by the playing of harp when Saul was having these uh, anxiety attacks and panic attacks and all of these other things. And so we see that David's mental attitude comes through. As you look at this psalm, Psalm 59, we're going to uh, examine it. But when we get to the end, as he's facing this this horrible situation that is life-threatening, his concluding thoughts are, I will sing of your power, and I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. This is joyful singing, exaltation. He is excited and exalting in the power of God, even as he's going through this this uh, horrible negative situation. So we're looking at this psalm, Psalm 59, and the main theme of this psalm is a popular theme in the psalms, and that is that God is our sure defense. God is in many different uh, metaphors that we see here that are going to uh, come into play tonight. So I want to begin with just some introductory matters. In fact, tonight's basically going to be an introduction and flyover of this psalm. I spent a lot of time yesterday and much of today studying it, and it's just a joy to study the Psalms. It's been a long time since I've, I've done, any, done some of this, and unfortunately, my glasses aren't as strong as they used to be. Uh, I've, I do a lot of work, as most of you know, using Logos and using some other computer programs. But if you have a Hebrew text and you look at the Hebrew text, in the margins, there is, if they, there's extremely fine print, two or three points, smaller than the footnotes. And a lot of times the sigla in the margins points out different types of issues that are going on with the text. And some of that is important in understanding what this text says. And as I point out, a lot of times before we can ever get to application, we really have to understand what is going on here in this text? What is actually being said? And there's differences because we have the Ma uh, Masoretic text, which is sort of the accepted uh, uh, authorized version, as it were, of the Hebrew text. And this goes back to, a, it was pretty much finalized around 900 AD. So we're talking 800 years after the close of the canon, 800 years after the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. And during that time, there were, uh, I don't think it applies in this particular passage, but there were things, as we studied in Psalm 110, there were things that were changed just by simply changing the vowel points to take away some of the messianic implications. And I don't think that applies in this particular psalm, but but there are some, some textual issues here where the Masoretic text disagrees with the Septuagint, the, uh, a, couple, a couple of Targums, which are uh, very ancient Jewish commentaries on the text, and so we can see how they, what they viewed of the text, as well as a couple of other ancient manuscripts. And when I went through Dallas Seminary, uh, this is something I really learned from Michael Rydelnik, when I went through Dallas, the rule of thumb on textual criticism in the Old Testament, which is very different from New Testament textual criticism, is that if the Masoretic text says it, just go with it. And and that is a predominant view across evangelicalism. But the alternate view, which is espoused by more and more uh, more conservative uh, evangelicals as well as some Israeli scholars, is that if the you have at least two ancient versions, like the Septuagint and one other ancient version, if they agree against the Masoretic text, 
especially if you've got some ancient Dead Sea Scrolls and it agrees with the Septuagint, then that's probably the more accurate reading. We'll get into that when we get into the verse-by-verse study next week. But I want to go through some introductory matters that apply to any psalm. Psalms are a great thing to read and to study devotionally. And they often, as we get into them, they, they mean a lot to us in different circumstances of life. There's 150 psalms. It's the largest book in the Bible. It's the middle book in the Bible, so that if you hold your Bible up, even if you have a study Bible, if you have a lot of notes in the back, it'll change things. But, but mostly, if you split your Bible in half, you're going to find the book of Psalms. 73 of the 150 psalms are specifically stated to have been written by David. 73, that's almost half. But we know that there are others that were written by David because the New Testament quotes from from 4 or 5, such as Psalm 110, which we just finished studying on Sunday morning, uh, that um, that's where Jesus says that this was written by David, but that isn't what the psalm says. There are other psalms that are quoted in the New Testament as a psalm of David, uh, but it wasn't written by psalm. And that's not just because it, it, it was just generally thought that the, that the psalms were, were Davidic. It's, it's more specific than that. And so it's very clear that at least half the Psalms, maybe uh, maybe a good bit, good deal more, were written by King David. Twelve of these, like the one we're studying tonight in um, in Psalm fifty nine, were have a historical contents content set in that uh, superscription at the beginning of the of the psalm that's part of the inspired text now david didn't write it that way but i believe that when the psalms were collected and they were organized and brought together in their final form under ezra probably at the when the jews returned from when the israelites returned from captivity that the holy spirit was working in that organization as well uh, that the, those who compiled and organized the Psalms uh, did so under inspiration of Scripture. And so there is a significance to the order and structure of the Psalms. Now, what that is, um, is uh, up for a lot of debate, but I believe in, there are a lot of scholars who say that that's not, that's not true, but I believe that there is a, uh, a purpose for that. Somebody may say what it is, I don't know. I haven't had the time to get into that. That's really spending hundreds of hours studying and and memorizing all of the Psalms. Third, we know that several other Psalms other than these 12 uh, or other than these 73 were uh, written by others. Um, We have uh, Asaph, who was a choir director. He was the chief musician uh, of the Le- Levitical musicians in the temple at the time of David, uh, wrote Psalm 50, Psalm 73 through 83. So he he wrote um, 12 psalms. Solomon wrote Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. Moses wrote Psalm 90. Uh, Heman the Ezraite, that's he was a disciple of Ezra who wrote the book of Ezra, who was a, uh, a priest at the time of about the second or third return from Babylon. He wrote Psalm 88, and then there was Ethan the Ezraite who wrote Psalm 89. That's a well-known and very important psalm that's a meditation on the Davidic covenant. And so that's that's crucial. So these are just some, some basics about uh, the background on the psalms. Now, the book of Psalms, the Psalter as we have it, is divided into five books as the organization. As I said, I lean toward very heavily towards the view that the organization and structure of the Psalms was done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you have the first 41 uh, books make up, uh, 41 Psalms make up book one, and then that closes at the end of 4113 with a benediction. A benediction is the expression of a blessing. And bless the word bless has different connotations. And when it, the, the object of blessing is God, 
then the word bless has the connotation of praise to God. We don't bless God. God is not in need of our blessing. God is infinite. Uh, he is uh, totally independent and not dependent upon his creatures for anything. The idea of blessed blessing God is the idea of praising God and expressing uh, um, thanksgiving uh, for all that he has done. So Psalm 41.13 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And that word amen means to believe. It is a form of the root verb for belief. So it is a strong affirmation of, of faith. Book two is Psalm 42 to 72, and Psalm 72, 19 ends with a benediction, a blessing statement, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. One of the things we're going to see tonight as we go through the opening material is, and one of the reasons I designed the class this way is because it really is going to focus our attention on God. And tonight, with the end of this election, I think somebody here made the comment earlier that that we've gone through about nine months of labor, and to, tomorrow we're going to find out if we've got a boy or a girl. But it's been a tough and strange election, hard for everybody and hard on the country, and we need to have our focus on the Lord. The third book Psalm, covers Psalm 73 to 89, which ends with the benediction, Blessed be the Lord. Notice each time it's in caps, it's Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And then book four is Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. What's the Hebrew for praise the Lord? Hallelujah. Okay. And then the fifth book is Psalm 107 to Psalm 150, which includes both the shortest and the longest psalm. The shortest psalm is Psalm 118. The longest is Psalm 119. Psalm 150 itself is the final benediction to the entire Psalter. And so it is the, the benediction to the Psalter, not just one verse, but an entire psalm. And so I wanted to, to read that tonight. Praise the Lord. These are commands, exhortations to uh, the people to praise God, to praise Yahweh, to praise God in his sanctuary. That is, remember, it's at the time of the temple. Go to the temple and praise God. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds. Think through what God has done historically. When you get into passages like this, and we're praising God for his mighty days, one of the things that that is is really sad in, in our generation is that people have trivialized the praise of God when we're praising God for his mighty mighty deeds. And many of us have things that we can look at in our life, and we're just thankful that God did them. And they're not all that um, necessarily all that significant. There are things that we like because they made our life a little better or we avoided some problem. But when we look at the scripture and it talks about praising God for his mighty deeds, remember in Acts 2 when the disciples are on the st steps of the temple and they the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they're all speaking in these various languages to the people who've come to to the temple to, to worship at Pentecost. And what does the text say that they talked about? It doesn't say they talked about the gospel, although I think that would be included. It says they, they talked about the wondrous deeds or the mighty deeds of God. You know, they're talking about the great things that God has done, creation, deliverance of Noah and his family, uh, the calling out of Abram, the preservation of the family of Jacob and his sons by taking them to uh, to Egypt and preserving them, the preservation of the Jews and the blessing upon the Israelites in Egypt. And then their deliverance at the Exodus is one of the major uh, works that are praised again and again in the, in the Psalms. 
And as you go through, these are the things uh, that are, are pray, that praise is given for, praising his mighty deeds, these things in history. And, and we look at that and say, oh, it just happened so long ago. Okay, the Exodus happened in 1400 B.C., 1,400 years before Jesus. That means that if you were alive when Jesus arrived, you'd say, but that happened so long ago. 1,400 years is a long time ago. But they were supposed to keep the Shabbat, I mean, keep Seder, keep Passover, Pesach, because of, um, uh, to remember God's mighty deeds. Just because it happened uh, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago doesn't make it any less significant or any less real. Praise him according to his excellent greatness, thinking through his attributes. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. And I think that's really important. We praise God with music, but it's got to be the right kind of music. Music, as uh, Scott Annual uh, taught us when he was here, you remember the Schaefer Conference about three or four years ago. He's a, now a professor uh, in the music department at Southwestern Baptist Seminary. He said, music's a language. And the problem is there's a lot of different musical languages, and most of them are antagonistic to the expression of praise. And we talked about that. There's a right way to praise God and a wrong way to praise God. And a lot of the contemporary music that's out there today is built on paganism and is um, and the music itself is wrong. It, in many cases, the, the music is of a language that contradicts what the words are supposed to be saying. And then you've got a problem w- with the words. And the words are often uh, trite. I mean, one of the things about a hymn, and we studied this uh, a number of years ago, is that when you look at a good hymn, not all hymns are good, and, uh, but when you look at a good hymn and you just take the words out, it's good poetry. It's quality poetry. We're honoring God. It's, it's excellent poetry. But if you take out the words of a lot of this contemporary music that's used today, it's bad poetry. It's trivial. It's trite. Um, it's not going to do anything to improve somebody's ability uh, to think. And that's part of the reason that you have people read good literature is to elevate their thinking, read good poetry, uh, read Shakespeare, read Wordsworth, read... It doesn't matter what what their content is. If it's good poetry, it will elevate your sense of poetry. You will never learn how to eat good food and, and appreciate really good food if you exist on a diet of Whataburgers and Burger King. The only way you're going to develop a palate to appreciate good fruit is to go to good restaurants. And if you don't know what a good restaurant is with a good chef, then you need to listen to somebody who knows. And your palate will be educated. And you will learn to that. And after you eat good food, it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be something that's going to break your bank account. But that's how you develop good taste if you enjoy uh, wine. That's how you 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 don't develop a, a palate for good wine by drinking Thunderbird or Ripple or Apple or Boone's Farm apple wine. Okay, you have to drink good quality wine that develops your palate. And so what we do is we dumb down everything in the church, and we sing trivialized, clicheish songs that are supposed to be praise. And nobody has an appreciation or understanding for good music or good lyrics. And it, it, it's devastating to the church and to pray. So we have to have good music. There's nothing wrong, harp and lyre, uh, stringed instruments, nothing wrong with different kinds of instruments, but it's the kind of music and the quality of the music. Praise him with timbrel. Uh, timbrel's a little different from a modern tambourine. A tambourine has has jingly cymbals on it, and that, the ancient timbrels were just basically a skin stretched over a round hoop, and it was a, a percussion instrument without the uh, the metal uh, uh, cymbals associated with it. Praise him with timbrel and dancing, and that's not the kind of praise dancing that you see today. Trust me, this is just as postmodern as most of the music that is sung that people think impresses God. Uh, praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. This was all part of these huge orchestras. Uh, 
that the temp that the Levites had to conduct praise in the temple. That uh, was structured. It was orderly. It was it was brilliant and masterful. Now, when you look at the Psalms, there's all kinds of different Psalms. There's depending on who you're reading and how you classify them. There are different classifications. Some Psalms are Thanksgiving Psalms or praise Psalms. Some are what they call declarative praise Psalms. Others are what they call descriptive praise psalm. In a descriptive praise psalm, you're describing what God did. In a declarative, you're calling upon others to join you in praising God uh, for something that, that he has done. There's thanksgiving psalms, and then there are uh, what is referred to as lament psalms. And there are two categories of lament psalms. There's the communal or national lament, and then there's the individual lament. The individual lament is, is, uh, in fact, Psalm 59 is listed in this list that I took as an individual lament, but uh, we'll see that there are elements in this lament psalm that that are, are typical of a national or a communal lament where the nation is crying out to God over some uh, distress or crisis in the life of the nation. That's what a lament is. Normally we think of lament as expressing grief or mourning, but it has also the meaning of expressing someone's complaint. They're going through a time of adversity, a time of distress, and they're crying out to God to pay attention to what's going on in their life and to deliver them from the uh, difficult times, the horrors or whatever of their particular uh, circumstances. So Psalm 59 is a lament. It has, it's probably a, I think that it's probably an individual lament, but that David, because he is the anointed and future king of of Israel gives it a national sense as we as we'll see going through there because as he is being attacked by these enemies the soldiers of Saul it has a national dimension to it and as the king or the future king of Israel he so ties himself or connects himself to Israel and Israel's future that he easily makes an application and a transition to where he goes from talking about just, you know, Saul's soldiers attacking him to Gentiles who are attacking Israel. And so there's that dimension uh, to this that we'll see as we go along. Now, when we study a lament, uh, you may ask the question, say, well, uh, how do we know that it is a lament psalm? And there are usually six characteristics that are listed that um, help us to identify a a lament. First of all, it is addressed to God at the very beginning. As we see in Psalm 59, he's saying, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. So he's calling upon God to do something, to intervene in his life and to rescue him from uh, from some crisis. So uh, it's addressed to God. Um, you know, when you're, if you're reading a letter and it says, Dear so-and-so and your name is there, then you know that, that, that this is a petition or expression or something that somebody is, is uh, bringing to you. And so this is addressed to God. Uh, secondly, there's usually an introductory petition or a cry for aid. So it's addressed to God, defend me or deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. But, but in the expression and the, uh, of this toward God, he is saying, defend me from those who rise up against me, deliver me from the workers of iniquity, and save me from bloodthirsty men. So this is his introductory petition. He's in a tight spot, and then later he will... Uh, express the problem in with more detail and and it doesn't always follow this order but you will have these sections there then there's a a um, confidence section where he begins to express his confidence and trust in God for example um, 
Verse 5 has elements of that. You therefore, conclusion, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all these nations. Do not be merciful uh, to any transgressor. So there's more of a sense of confidence there. So that uh, would fit into this at the beginning. And then there's a broader lament section, which expresses and details more of the problem. That would be in verses 6, uh, 6 and 7. And then you have um, a main petition. You also have another statement of confidence that comes up in verse 8. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. Now, we live in a politically correct time, whereas if you are laughing at somebody who is wrong, oh, you're just such a horrible person. But God laughs at his enemies. He laughs at the evildoers. He derides and ridicules the evil, the evildoers because they are standing against him. Uh, so we get into that's part of the confidence section. Um, and then you get into the main petition, which I think starts around verse 11. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. He's saying, don't just, killing them outright is just too good for them, God. Just make them really suffer so they're an object lesson uh, for everybody else not to be disobedient like, uh, like they have been. So he gets into more of the petition. Uh, he talks about verse 13, consume them in wrath, consume them, um, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Then we have uh, usually a vow of praise at the end. This is a section where there's a public proclamation. Sometimes what he, the psalmist vows to do to give praise to God in the temple. And this is stated in verses uh, 16 and 17. But after he focuses on how bad the bad guys are, and he, then he thinks he's thought about who God is, it transforms his whole mental attitude. That is a tremendous lesson for us that when you're facing problems in life, financial, health, family, uh, job, career, school, military, whatever it may be, start thinking about the attributes of God and write it down. Good exercise. Write down uh, each attribute and then how that attribute applies to your circumstances. Go through that, that mental exercise. And all of a sudden, we begin to see that compared to God, the, the problems we're concerned about are, are, are pretty minimal. And that's what David is doing in, these, in many of these lament psalms. And he says, but I will sing of your power. So the focus is on God's omnipotence. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy, your faithful, loyal love. It's chesed there. I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. But don't do that if your spouse is not a morning person. Okay, I'll just warn you that that's probably not a good idea. Okay, or if they like to stay awake until 5 or 6 in the morning working and then sleep during the day, don't, don't do it in the morning. Do it some other time. That's not a divine mandate to do it in the morning. Uh, for you have been my defense. And refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. And that's such a great, great couple of verses to memorize, especially when we look at difficult times. And we may be looking at difficult times in this nation uh, one way or the other. So what we're doing here is we're looking through and we see the structure that we have in the Psalms. And we see the language, and there's usually some distinctive language that is repeated as you go through the Psalms, and, and this is significant. And one of the things that you learn when I'm talking about language, you have figures of speech. We'll look at this because he compares his enemies uh, to dogs. At evening, they return, they growl like a dog. And we're going to have to look at that uh, idiom a little bit because you and I think of dogs uh, in completely different ways than somebody in the Middle East at that time thought about a dog. The, the, in the Middle East, then as now, dogs were the scavengers. They were uh, wild. Uh, they're not your little cuddly um, 
terrier or golden retriever that uh, sleeps at the foot of your bed. Um, th these are very nasty, wild uh, animals that are mostly starving uh, most of the time. I've got, I wish I had some pictures of this now, but when uh, it's not as much of a problem today as it was when I first went to Kiev, but uh, there were so many people after the Soviet Union broke up and during the hard economic times of the, of, of the 90s that, that they just couldn't take care of their pets, and so they would just let them go. And the first two or three years that I was in Kiev, if I remember going over to Jim Meyer's apartment, it was about a mile and a half. A uh, mile or mile and a quarter walk back to uh, uh, Jim Dumas's apartment where I was staying at the time, and you would go through this one section that was on the other side of a uh, major major thoroughfare and the uh, metro station, and you'd come out and it was kind of empty and not a lot going on in that area, and there would be these packs of fifty or sixty wild dogs that were just roaming the streets. And it was a little bit spooky about 11 o'clock at night when not much else is moving except these, uh, except these packs of wild dogs. But that's, that's the image here is of these uh, packs of wild dogs scavenging for anything to sustain them. Now, as I look at this, a question that I think some people might ask is, well, aren't you just overanalyzing the Psalms? You're just breaking everything down to each individual component and you're spending a tremendous amount of time. And can't we just read it and appreciate it and, and uh, for what it is that this is praise to God and just kind of enter into that? And that's sort of an attitude you'll often find with a lot of people, uh, especially over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, but that doesn't do justice to the text. The, are to the author, the human author of the text. The Psalms are written with a specific structure. They knew what they were writing about. They knew that they were following a certain structure, uh, just as someone who writes good poetry today understands that they write within certain uh, certain structures and uh, in Hebrew poetry, they would write with uh, these specific forms of praise psalms or thanksgiving psalms or lament psalms and so they use those specific uh specific structures these are psalms that weren't just words that just weren't written down on the spur of the moment or spontaneously but they were thought about and the uh, obviously the holy spirit inspired but inspiration wasn't that they just sat down and boom it was right there it was the holy spirit worked in and through the process of their writing and their uh, expression of what was going on. Uh, they use uh, specific kinds of language. They use uh, specific kinds of parallelism. In English poetry, a lot of times they rhyme words. But in Hebrew poetry, they would rhyme ideas. So a lot of times you'll see that the first line is repeated but with other words. The thought of the first line is repeated but with other words like the... Um, by the second line, for example, in Psalm 59.1, uh, the cry is from David is, Deliver me from my enemies. The second line says, Defend me, and that's parallel, to, uh, synonymous with deliver me. And then it's defend me from those who rise up against me. See how... It's saying the same thing, but with other words. That's called synonymous parallelism. There are different kinds of parallelism, and, and the psalm, psalmist will use different kinds of parallelism within the structure of the psalm. So, so we have to, we're not overanalyzing the psalms. We're going through this process so that we can more thoroughly understand the psalm. And the better we understand the psalm, the better God the Holy Spirit can help us to see how the doctrinal principles there apply to our own lives and to our own thinking. Uh, the, the writer of the psalms wrote using specific figures of speech and rhythm and parallelism in order to evoke certain specific responses from the person who reads them. But if we fail to understand correctly all of these aspects of a psalm uh, and that's, that are critical for interpreting it, 
then we may be responding in ways that were unintended by either the human or the divine author of the psalm simply because we haven't understood the psalm. And I remember many years ago, I was pastoring a church, and this church had what they called mini churches. And um, uh, that was a structure that I had inherited, and they would, we only had, we met in a YMCA. We only met, could meet on Sunday morning. So we had these home groups that met during, uh, during the week and that were led by, by the uh, elders in the church. And so that basically functioned like a Sunday school that wasn't on Sunday. And I remember going to one of them when I was uh, first uh, there as a pastor, getting to know the people and what they were doing. And they were uh, meeting and they were reading through a psalm. And the uh, man who was leading the, the, the study was going around trying to get people engaged in the scripture and everything, saying, well, what, what you, you, we would read the first three or four verses, and what does that mean to you? And I remember, um, and my blood pressure was going up a little bit, uh, I remember this one lady who was, who was talking about uh, how this impacted her. And it, had, it, it was totally contrary to what the historical circuit, and it, it was in a psalm. I don't remember which psalm it was, but it was in one of these uh, uh, 12 or 14 psalms that David wrote with a historical subscript. She totally ignored the context. And, uh, but this is so common today. No, we, we analyze these psalms so that we can really enter into the original intended meaning of the psalm, and then God the Holy Spirit helps us to see how that uh, relates to our own life. So when we look at Psalm, Psalm 59, I was reading through uh, Alan Ross's uh, commentary on the Psalms. Now, when you read the Psalms, it's helpful to have a good commentary. And one of the commentary that I recommend to people is the Dallas Seminary Bible Knowledge Commentary. It was written, I hope they never revise it, it was written uh, in the early 80s, and nearly er I know nearly every, knew personally almost every author of every commentary. Many of them were my professors when I went through Dallas, and Al Ross was. Uh, he had a doctorate from Dallas and a doctorate from Cambridge, and he taught a course on the Psalms, a required course on the Psalms every year, and he has off and on through his career since he left Dallas in the in the late 80s, and uh, he's just published the third volume of a three-volume uh, commentary on the Psalms, and each one of those volumes is larger than the Old Testament commentary that Dallas Seminary produced on the whole Old Testament. Uh, and it is just a treasure trove of great information. And also, if you're a Hebrew, uh, you know Hebrew technical information there. But he says, regarding Psalm 59, he says, uh, it, and he also wrote the Psalms commentary in that Bible knowledge commentary set from Dallas Seminary. That's why I'd recommend, recommend that. Psalm 59 is essentially a lament psalm, even though it varies somewhat from other more straightforward laments. Um, what he means by that is individual laments. But there is some question whether it is the lament of an individual or a national lament. The motifs that fit a national lament are God's rule, interest in the nations, and judgment on the nations. And so we have that, that some of those elements here in uh, this particular psalm. For example, in Psalm uh, five, it talks about you, therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. That's talking about God's rule and his oversight of the nations and his judgment on the nations. And it's also brought out uh, in several other places in, uh, in the psalm, for example, at the end of verse 13, and let them know that God rules in Jacob. That's the rule of God to the ends of the earth. That's God's sovereign power. So David is primarily writing a personal lament, but he sees that there are parallels to the national circumstance and situation. And so he's, he's pushing it in that direction a little bit. Now, in terms of the structure of the psalm, it's a chiasm. We've studied a chiasm before, and uh, it's from the Greek letter, 
used to pronounce it chi, but now they pronounce it key, uh, looks like an X. And uh, so it's, it's like this. You have the left side of the X where you have the first, the first three points are mirrored in the last three sections. It's a prayer for deliverance in verses 1 through 3. There's an expression of his innocence and a protestation of his innocence in verses 4 to 5, and the wickedness that's occurring to him. And then in the third section, he talks about the wicked in God, and that's in verses 6 through 8. That's mirrored by the C prime section, hope in God. And it's that C and C prime section that's the center focus of this psalm where the focus is in God. God's sovereign uh, rule over the wicked. Uh, B prime is an imprecation. That's a fancy word for a curse on the wicked in verses 10b through 13. And A prime is confidence in God's response. Now, chiasm is a, a may not be a familiar word for a lot of people. If you've been listening to me for a while, it's familiar to you. There's also an, a chiasm related to your optic nerve. You have an, op- an optic nerve that's about the size of a pencil that runs from the back of your eyeball into the center of your brain. And you have one that goes from your right eye and your left eye, and they cross in the middle of your brain. That's a chiasm. And that nerve is called the optic, and that, that, that switch is called the optic chiasm. So what you see out of your left eye is interpreted by the right side of your brain. What you see out of the right eye is interpreted by the left side of your brain. That's an optic a chiasm, so it's not just a literary term. I say that every now and then because there's every now and then you get somebody who thinks, "Well, I make this stuff up." What do we What do we learn from this? Just some initial observations. We learn that this is a Psalm of David, and we know who David is as we have been studying um, studying David in First Samuel and the rise of David. We see, secondly, that this psalm is specifically linked to the time when Saul was sending his execution squads to kill his son-in-law David, the hero of Israel and the uh, killer of Goliath. Uh, Third, we see that David in this psalm is expressing his cry to God to deliver him as the house is basically put under observation by these hit teams and he's under almost house arrest as they are waiting and watching for the opportunity to kill him. He calls upon God to deliver him from his enemies. He also expresses his innocence in the psalm, that he hasn't done anything wrong. He has served the king honorably and the country honorably, and yet his enemies uh, are out to kill him. And he describes him several times. They're workers of iniquity. They're bloodthirsty men. They are... uh, pictured as wild, ravenous animals. And fifth, he draws a parallel between these enemies of of himself as Israel's future king and the nations who are uh, enemies of Israel. So just as they are against him, sort of personifying the nation, so he connects them to the Gentile nations who are against Israel. By the way, this the uh, United Nations was taking some, not UNESCO, that was the vote that a few weeks ago related to um, not recognizing the historic connection of Israel to the Temple Mount. Now the UN itself is taking up several votes and they're continuing this same fraud. And that's because many, most of the nations who are determining this are, are Arabs and they are hostile to, to Israel. Now as we get into this, Remember one of the first and most important points of Bible study methods, and when you read your Bible, you ought to be doing this, and that is observation, looking at the text. What does the text say? Reading through the psalm maybe two or three times, and and you begin to notice uh, that there are certain words, even in the English, there are some words that show up that that are similar. And for example, in the first two verses, they began, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. The second verse says, deliver me from the workers of iniquity. So you would circle deliver in both places. That's an important word here. In between, the second stanza, verse 1 says, defend me from those who rise up against me. And then when you get down to the end of the psalm, in verse 16, David says, for you have been my defense. 
So he's prayed for God to defend him. Then he concludes, you have been my defense. And in verse 17, the universal statement for God is my defense. So you would connect those words. So what I was doing is I was reading through this and going through that process myself. I saw that there were a number of important key words. The first word is the word that's translated deliver, the very first word in the first verse. Uh, deliver, sometimes it's translated defend or protect. We have synonyms like defend, protect, shield. Those are some of the synonyms. The word for deliver is the Hebrew word natsal. And uh, going in, you don't know anything about Hebrew, but it has these various uh, stems, not cases, but stems. And the hifil means causative. So it's cause me to be delivered. That's the thrust of that of that nuance. And it's used in both Psalm 59, 1 and uh, 2, but this is a word that's used 32 different times in the Psalms. And most of those would be in lament Psalms where the psalmist is crying out that God would deliver them. And you have it in passages. Some of these verses that I'm going to show you that, that are from other Psalms are great verses to memorize. Psalm 34, 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Isn't that a great verse if you're prone to anxiety, fear, worry, mental attitude, sins like that? I sought the Lord, uh, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 34, 17 and Psalm 34, 19, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears. See, that was also a thought that's linked there in 34, 4. Uh, he heard me. I sought the Lord. He heard me. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. In verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. If I was a Baptist, I'd say, can I get an amen here? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So that's a word deliver that we begin with. It means it's means to be rescued, to be saved. Those are the other synonyms to the word deliverance. Then we have the word defend. Now this is an interesting word. It's translated defend, but that's not its its main meaning. Uh, the verb is sagav. Uh, the pl is an intensive stem. And it means literally to be exalted or to be lifted high. Now, we'll look at the noun in a minute because that's used. And the noun means also it's to be a high place. Sometimes it's used in a negative sense, but in the Psalms, it's often God protects me. And the word there is God set me on a high place above my uh, my enemy. So we always know that the, 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 best, the best position for the military to take is to seize the high ground uh, so they can have a better vantage point. Uh, this word, sagav, is used three other times in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 20, verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. When you have adversity, may the Lord answer you. May the name of the God of Jacob defend. And that's the verb. Literally, may the God of Jacob set you on a high place above your troubles. Psalm sixty nine twenty nine. but I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O Lord, set me up on high. Psalm ninety one fourteen. because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high. This is God speaking, because he has known my name. That's more than just name recognition. That is understanding God's character and relying upon him. Um, in this slide, see, I have the, 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 the verb over here, sagav, and the uh, basic consonants are S, G, and V. It's a soft B, so it's actually pronounced more like a V. But you see the same thing here. You have the, I capitalized the letters here, so you'd see S, G, and B. Those are the same consonants as you have in the verb, and it means a high place or a refuge. And Psalm 59.9 says, I will wait for you, O you his strength. See, who is you his strength? That's talking about God. Uh, God is our strength. For God is my defense. He Literally, God is my high tower. 
To you, O my strength, he says at the conclusion of the psalm, in Psalm 59, 17, to you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my high tower, literally, my God of mercy. What are the attributes we see in that last verse? To you, O my strength, what attribute is that? Omnipotence. I will sing praises, for God is my defense. Again, that would be related to his omnipotence and his protection, his love. My God of mercy, that's related to God's, God's love. Psalm 18.2 says, and I love this verse. It's got so many great metaphors for the protection of God. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. This isn't a rock like you go pick up outside. Okay, this is a rock like a huge escar- escarpment, like Stone Mountain in um, in, in, in uh, Atlanta or uh, Enchanted Rock out north of Fredericksburg. That's that's the idea here. This is a huge, huge rock that covers dozens and hundreds of acres. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength. Word strength we find several times in Psalm 59. My strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation my high place, my stronghold, that's that word that we're looking at, my high place. Psalm 62, 2, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, that is, he's my high tower. Uh, I shall not be greatly moved, can't shake me, you can't worry, I can't get shake, shaken up because God is for me. Psalm 62, 6, he only is my rock and my salvation, he is my defense, my high tower, I shall not be moved. He reiterates that. So that's something you could do. Go home tonight, take a look at Psalm 62 and read that. Psalm 144.2, my uh, loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Next time you read through the Psalms, look at all the make a list of all the different metaphors that are used to talk about God's protection. Another one that we see here is in in terms of the psalm is the word refuge used in in relation to defense. We take refuge in God as our high tower. It's used one time, one time only in the psalms in Psalm 59. um, Should be 16 in the English, it's 17 in the Hebrew. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning for you have been my defense and refuge in my day of trouble. It's a place to go hide. And then um, we have the word for shield. This is the Hebrew word magen. Maybe you've heard of magen David. You know, mogen David, it's the shield of David. It's a type, it's a type of wine. But magen David is the, is the Red Cross service in Israel. It's the shield of David. It's protection. And that's used in Psalm 59, 9-11. O Lord, our shield. Then we have words for strength. Psalm 59.9, O o you, uh, his strength. Uh, There's some, whether it's his or my strength is, is, uh, depends on which text you're reading. That's a thing we'll look at next time. And then Psalm uh, 59.9 in the Tanakh version said, because of his strength, I will wait for thee for God is my high tower. And then we have the word for mercy. So it focuses on the grace and the loyal love of God. This is a word familiar to many of us, chesed. Uh, The word chasidim for the Hasidic Jews comes from this, has to do with loyalty. Uh, Psalm 59.10, my God of mercy shall come to meet me. Uh, Interesting, one Hebrew translation I read, a rabbinical translation, he will anticipate me. It's picking up the new. He's coming to meet me. He anticipates my need, and God is on the way to rescue me. Uh, Psalm 59, 16, but I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. You, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. So this is how we should look at God as we think especially about the election, national destiny, how it affects us individually. Uh, We can focus upon this. And I just want to close by looking at uh, one passage 
written at a time after the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, as Jeremiah is weeping over the absolute defeat and destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah, he said, the elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased and our dance is turned into mourning. But that's what happened to Judah when they were apostate. They had no hope in God. When David is looking at a crisis, he sings to God. When Israel is focused on this, there's no hope. But for Jeremiah, he says, remember, um, remember my affliction, he's praying to God, my affliction and roaming, uh, the wormwood and the gall, that is the bitterness of this experience. Just because we have joy doesn't mean we don't go through bitter times. He says, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. I remember the greatness of Judah, but, and so I have an emotional response. Uh, we look at our country, we see how it's fallen, and so our heart sinks within us. But this I recall to mind, he said, therefore I have hope. My hope isn't based upon the success or failure of a political election. It's not based on what's happening in the Supreme Court. It's not based on what's happening in Congress. I have hope because of the Lord's mercies. We are Because of the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is not going to change tomorrow, no matter who wins, or next month, or next year, or the next four years. And our focus needs to be on the Lord and not on whatever temporal disasters occur. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word as it is a comfort to our souls because it is the truth. And our focus should be upon you and our mission here in this life to be faithful witnesses to you and to live out our lives so that they reflect your honor and your glory and all that you are. And we do that by taking your word and applying it just as David did in the midst of his uh, difficult uh, circumstance where he was being hunted by Saul's, uh, Saul's army. Father, we pray that we might follow his example and focus upon you and upon your word so that we can come to realize that great joy and happiness that you have for us that is not dependent on circumstances or situations or people or events, but it's based upon who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.